Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, listeners. I want to thank our good friends at Slipped Disc for their enthusiastic support of Speaking Soundly. Be sure to check out slipdisc.com for the latest inside information on classical music now. Oh, and while you're here, could you do me a favor? If you like this show, follow it. It's pretty simple, really, and it's free. Just click the follow button on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. And if you already follow the show, click the share podcast button and send Speaking Soundly to your friends and relatives that also like listening to candid and inspiring conversations with some of the best musicians on the planet. All right. So thanks again for the continued support. We really appreciate it. American conductor Joshua Weilerstein was catapulted to international attention at the early age of 22 after winning first prize of the world-famous Malco Conducting Competition with virtually no training. He enjoys a robust career leading top orchestras around the world and credits his success to his musical family, the legacy of Leonard Bernstein, and his ability to trust and be true to himself. When I was starting to conduct professionally, I was told I needed to toughen up and get nasty with people when I needed to, and then I needed to scare the orchestra. I didn't really try it because I didn't know how. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. When you think of family businesses, you tend to think of plumbing supply or pizza restaurants. You don't often think about chamber music. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit about your insanely talented and successful musical family? Sure. Well, you you called it the family business. I like to call it the family circus. Um, (laughs) It's So I basically grew up with music my whole life. I heard music when I was waking up. I heard music when I was going to sleep. Um, And I wasn't actually particularly interested in becoming a musician myself until I was a teenager, but I played the violin from a very young age. And I always 
loved music to a certain extent. I was more in- interested in pop music and rock until I was also a teenager. But yeah, it was a kind of constant stream of music going on in the house. Well, it should be said that your parents are famous chamber musicians and teachers, and your sister, Elisa, is an internationally acclaimed cello soloist. Did you feel unbelievable pressure to become a classical musician growing up in this family? Not really. I mean, my my parents were great about they never pressured either of us. My sister wanted to be a cellist from when she was four years old, I think. She knew from the first moment that she touched the cello that that's what she wanted to do. And I at first nursed an idea of being an NBA player and then realized that short Jewish kids don't get to play in the NBA. Not typically. Um, typically. And I, I didn't feel any pressure at all with it. I like to say I practiced 25 minutes a day five days a week, three seasons a year, because when the summer came, I just put the violin away and didn't practice. But I had wonderful teachers. That's a pretty regimented way of not practicing. (laughs) I like that approach. Yeah, I mean, I would just practice for like exactly 25 minutes before school every day. And that was what I was willing to do. Um, So when I was 14, we moved to Boston. And partly as a way to help me make friends, I joined the youth orchestra, which was conducted by Ben Zander, uh, the Youth Philharmonic Orchestra. And I never played in an orchestra before, basically. So I wasn't really that into it. I was sitting, you know, 37th stand in the second violins, and I didn't, you know, I didn't care much. But we went on this tour to Panama and Guatemala, and we played all these concerts for kids who had never heard classical music before. I remember packing into a gym, it was like 110 degrees, and we were playing for 2,000 kids, and Ben would bound up onto the stage and say, how many of you have never heard a symphony orchestra before? And every single hand goes up. And that was really exciting, I think, especially for me as someone who, you know, it's not particularly normal to have classical music in the house as much as I did as a kid. And to see people who didn't have that, Mm. it was amazing. That kind of lit a light bulb over my head, and then I... That summer, I went to the Greenwood Music Camp, and I think partly being away from the influence of my family and seeing my peers who were so in love with chamber music, all they wanted to do was read chamber music all day. And I just fell in love with it. And at that moment, that summer made me decide I wanted to be a violinist. You know, it's so typical and as a parent, so enraging when you're saying something to your child over and over and over again. And the second they walk out of the house, they're like, oh, I did this great thing. And it's like, yeah, I've been telling you that for <laughs> your entire childhood. But when you do it with friends, it's, it's obviously different. At what point did that shift from violin to conducting start to happen? My freshman year, our orchestra was conducted by Ludovic Morlot, who was the assistant conductor of the Boston Symphony at the time. I started getting interested in conducting, and I asked Ludovic about it, and he said, you should just basically watch as many great conductors as you can and see if you're interested in it. So the first thing he suggested was Carlos Kleiber. So I watched a DVD of Kleiber conducting Brahms' Second Symphony, and as I was checking the DVD out of our NEC video library, this guy was standing next to me who I didn't know, and he said, have you seen that? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, that's going to change your life. And... I watched it and I saw this guy again a couple of days later. He said, hey, what did you think of the Cliver? And I said, well, you were right. <laughs> like, it was just mind blowing. I didn't know a conductor could do anything like that. And what, what kinds of things specifically blew your mind about his conducting? Well, I think, you know, as many people do, they think of conductors as 
these all-powerful authority figures, tyrannical and mean and, and controls people's lives and controls every note that people play. But Kleiber was shaping every note while also giving the musicians the total freedom to feel as if they were doing everything on their own. And I found that incredibly inspiring and also the total freedom of expression. There was no rigidity. There was no beating time. It was, it was pure music coming out of him, which transmitted to the orchestra, and it was the Vienna Philharmonic, who just gave it back to him in, I mean, the most luminous, unbelievable sound that I'd ever heard. Well, that's really inspiring even just to hear you talk about. You know, I'm interested in the idea of a conductor's temperament when you're standing in front of a hundred piece orchestra. The rehearsal starts when you start it. You're very much in charge. You're leading all of this and you have a limited amount of time to do it in. You seem like a really nice guy. Uh, you're <laughs> pleasant to talk to. Do you find yourself at times when you are conducting that you have to kind of amp up or find that tyrannical part of your personality just to get the things that you need to do done? I was told a lot when I was starting to conduct professionally, I was told I needed to toughen up and get nasty with people when I needed to. And I remember vividly someone telling me that I needed to scare the orchestra. And I didn't really try it because I didn't know how. And that's just who I am. And you have to be yourself when you're conducting or else no one will take you seriously. And I'm sure you as a player who's played with a million great conductors that you have uh, a great BS detector, as all orchestras do. And I think if you're a nice guy, nice woman, be that. If you're kind of a jerk sometimes, like, okay, do that. But just be yourself right. because otherwise it doesn't come off as genuine. So this is the long way of saying I have felt like if I have strong ideas about the music and I respect the musicians, there's a sort of intrinsic expectation that I expect that back from them. And I present my ideas politely and openly, and I hope that they accept them. Most of the time, I find that that more collegial atmosphere, despite the incredible power dynamic differences, does work. I read a review of yours from the Washington Post. It goes on to say that you're a fantastic conductor, all great musical things, but it says, at the age of 27, you looked about 15. <laughs> Can looking young on a podium be a detrimental thing? I'm sure that it is to a certain degree. I did at one point try to grow a beard. Unfortunately, it didn't really work. But I, again, I, I ended up realizing, like, I can't control what I look like. And so if I'm young, like, that's who I am. And orchestras, I think, Maybe you would disagree. I don't know. But orchestras usually decide to a certain extent how they feel about a conductor within like the first downbeat. And Sometimes before the downbeat. Yeah. You know, and I realized again, like, I don't think any industry that I know of has a BS detector like an orchestra. And so if I just get up there and I'm myself, you know, I'm the same person talking to you as I would be if I was conducting you, mm. you know, but in the, I think when I try to step into the role as the conductor, you as the principal trumpet, like we understand what the roles are in that case. Right. And so then I get to present my ideas and hope that the orchestra respects them and likes them and wants to go along with them. You started conducting a little later than most. In fact, you went on to win 
the Malco conductors competition with very little experience. First of all, I'm just thinking about the other students in that competition that must have been pretty cheesed off just because <laughs> you walked away with it with very little experience. But what does that say about your conducting abilities to garner that kind of attention after just a small amount of study? Yeah. I mean, I, you say a little experience. I had no experience. I had, oh. conduct, I had conducted my friends in the basement of NEC. And I went there and I'm suddenly conducting this great Danish orchestra. And I think partly because I had no experience and no sort of fears because I had no ambition to win the competition. I just went to get some experience. I think I was more relaxed than anybody there. And I was able to just express my musical outlook. Uh, We did the Firebird Suite in the second round, which went really well. You know, it's so such exciting music. And I think the judges saw a potential in me. And I think what actually really did do the trick, though, was when I finally got to the, the final round, there was the, a movement of a Brahms symphony and a Nielsen piece, because it was a Danish competition. And the other finalists had not really had time to prepare the, that piece. And I, because I had no concerts, I was just a student, I had studied it backwards and forwards, and I knew that piece so well. And I also had fallen in love with it. You know, I, I was able to, I think, give a pretty convincing performance of it, even with my lack of experience, because of how much I had studied it. And... You know, again, I think, you know, you were talking earlier about being frustrated with your kids, you know, only having the outside experience. But when I was growing up and having every dinner conversation be about the student that my parents taught that day or the concert that my sister just played and that sort of constant musical dialogue, I think that really helped me a lot. Right. They were your Mr. Miyagi from the Karate Kid, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. Uh, you were waxing on and waxing off uh, exactly. from when you were a little kid. So that's exactly. That, then you shined in the competition. Well, then at just the young age of 23, you were named one of the assistant conductors at the New York Philharmonic. First of all, I mean, I, I think I know what an assistant conductor does um, <laughs> because they're always around. And uh, obviously... Leonard Bernstein was the famous example when Bruno Walter wasn't there. He stepped in as an assistant in that same role at the New York Philharmonic and got his big break and some say launched his conducting career at that point. Do you have that in the back of your head? Like, are you putting banana peels around (laughs) hoping that you can have your big, your big moment? I mean, you're always wondering if it's going to happen and you you hope you're prepared enough for it, but it, you know, I think that that Bernstein story is true. It did really launch his career, but there there is a, there was a sort of confluence of events that made that happen. It was a nationally broadcast concert, and he's Leonard Bernstein. And I think even at twenty whatever, he was you know one of the greatest musicians on the planet already. Right. Um, so I think there was a special thing for that because actually I did step in at one point in my first week on the job. Alan Gilbert got stuck in traffic, and I had to conduct the Schubert Rosamunda Overture. Uh, which the orchestra had rehearsed for about five minutes because they'd played it a few months before I started. So I had no idea what was going on. You know, I, on, I was on the bus with the musicians and Glenn Dictoro, the former concertmaster, happened to be sitting right next to me. So I, I sidled up next to Glenn and I said, Glenn, talk me through this Schubert overture. <laughs> you were like trying to be as cool as you could. Yeah, exactly. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And um, he was great. He was so helpful. And the orchestra was amazing. Like they, I'm, sh- I again have sort of no memory of it. They sort of lifted me through it, but 
that of course is in the back of your mind, but mostly it's, it's listening to balance and, you know, helping either Alan or whoever was guest conducting that week with whatever I could help them with. Well, since that time, you've conducted so many top orchestras and you've been music director of several, most recently, a very interesting ensemble called the Phoenix Chamber Orchestra in Boston, which I read is described as performing music in a accessible and social atmosphere. This sounds awesome. What's a typical Phoenix Chamber Orchestra concert like? Essentially, the idea was to create incredibly high-level performances with great players in a much more casual atmosphere, where the musicians are interacting with audience members in between pieces. For example, you know, we, we just did a concert in September. We played three places in New England, the amazing Charles Ives piece to start with. And as soon as it was over, I turned around and said to everybody, go get a drink at the bar. And I walked into the audience and started just chatting with people about you know, what they heard. Did they like the Ives? Did they get it? Did they appreciate it? Um, what did they think? And the other musicians also amble into the audience. And it's just a, it's a really fun atmosphere, taking this great repertoire and just trying to unlock it for people who really love the idea of classical music, but are intimidated by the grand halls like David Geffen Hall or the Met Opera. You know, some people think that we should go back to what it was like in Mozart and Beethoven and Haydn's time, where people would clap and talk and socialize during performances. That can work. It happens a little bit at the opera house, I have yeah, to say. that's true. It's not on like a jazz club. Like they will applaud or scream in the middle of a, yes. an aria. The audience gives immediate feedback, not on like a sporting event, but not so much in the classical music hall. Yeah, you know, I think I remember... Something I found so stark when my sister got a chance to play for the Obamas when they did a classical music night at the White House. And Barack Obama gets up on the stage and says, you know, Michelle's going to have to tell me when to clap. And I thought to myself, okay, the president of the United States, this unbelievable intellectual genius guy who like I spent hours campaigning for, he's not comfortable enough to know when to clap at a classical music concert. Like, what are we doing wrong here? that someone like Barack Obama doesn't know when to clap and feels like he has to make that joke too, which means that he knows everybody in the audience feels that way too. So what, you know, what are we doing that's, that's not making people comfortable? You know, I remember I went to a Boston Symphony concert once. There were a bunch of, of school groups at this concert. So the second half was Brahms Four. End of the first movement's really exciting. It's very passionate and dramatic. And all the kids start clapping at the end. And a bunch of people start shushing them, not very politely. That is not a welcoming atmosphere if you want to give people a joyful experience in anything, making them feel bad. You know, if you go to an art museum and the security guard makes you feel like you don't belong there, right? you don't, you don't want to go back. And so I, you know, I, I, as people were shushing them, I was writing off these 150 school kids, like they're never coming back. They don't, you know, they just got humiliated. There's so many unwritten rules that are, you know, you, you learn when you go to any venue, but we just have to find a way to ease that process. Well, one of the ways that you're doing that when you're off the podium is you're a podcaster. You have a great show called Sticky Notes, and each episode is dedicated to breaking down a particular piece of classical music to its bare bones in a way that's digestible. How do you manage putting each show together, explaining these complicated pieces in an accessible and entertaining way? Well, thank you, first of all. Um, it It's hard, and it's something I, I 
grew into doing. I have to thank my my wife who, when I first was starting, I would read her my scripts and she would act as the non-musician. And she would say, what does that mean? What are you talking about? You know, this kind of thing. So I built this vocabulary of ways of explaining things really fast, like sonata form, for example. But the interesting thing about your podcast is that you will explain a very dry formula like that and then play the part in the piece where this actually happens. How do you go in and find those perfect little pieces to demonstrate your points? Well, most of the time I'm doing repertoire that I'm conducting. So I've been doing that work on trying to discover those interesting moments that I want to bring out in a performance. So that's part of it. Um, so I think, it's, it's yeah. almost kind of self-serving in a way, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like you're doing yeah. that, that research anyway. Yeah, absolutely. No, I do that research on my own and then I can bring it to... I was doing Brahms 4 a couple of weeks ago and I was just... You know, it was like double work I, at the same, you know, I was doing two things at once. I was writing my podcast and doing research and reading about Brahms 4, which then went into things I would tell the orchestra. And so it, when I don't, when I do pieces that I don't know well, often when I'm requested to by uh, Patreon sponsors, I, it's a much longer process because I'm having to dig things out from scratch. So that, that's a different kind of challenge. But when I'm pulling out things that I think are fascinating, usually it's often I explain the formula and then how that composer is messing with the formula to do something interesting. One of the interesting episodes I listened to was you just talking about classical music in general, and you start out with this mix of music saying, okay, all of this is classical <laughs> music. And it kind of started to hurt my head a little bit after a while because you're jumping hundreds of years from one thing to another, yeah. everything from Gregorian chant up to pieces that are written today. And they're all considered classical music. Do you think just calling everything classical is not unlike calling everything food as opposed <laughs> to, you know, individual <laughs> cuisines? Probably, yeah. I mean, it is a, it's more than a thousand years of music. But I, I would say if you walked down the street and asked someone who is not in, experiencing classical music and you played them a clip of like Boulez versus... Dvorak or something, just these two completely random examples and said, these are the same kind of music. They would say like, no, no, it's not. It's not the same kind of music. And so I don't know how to handle that. I don't know who decides this stuff. Yeah, I, I just um, want you to kind of you know. fix everything. Uh, <laughs> um, so as a conductor, you're traveling constantly. It's just part of the lifestyle. But from what I can imagine, also doing this podcast and the research associated with it must take up a tremendous amount of time. How do you fit all of this into your life? Well, I've got the podcast sort of down to, I wouldn't call it a science, but I know what I want to do in a show. I know how to write about an hour long show and the editing process. I know how to do it quick. The writing is the thing that takes the longest amount of time for me. It's just, you know, I love doing it. I think to me, the reason I started this podcast was imagining what Leonard Bernstein would be doing to evangelize classical music in the 21st century if he was still alive. I thought he would have the greatest classical music podcast of all time. And so I, I just love doing it. I can't imagine stopping it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. 
Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly 